ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد in the last session we looked at the musnad of al-imam ahmed rahimahullah ta'ala today now we're going to begin looking at the six famous books of hadith and they are of course sahih al-bukhari sahih muslim and then the sunan sunan of abi dawood of at-tirmidhi of an-nasa'i and of ibn majah as an introduction into this we'll quote the statement of abu al-hajjaj al-mizzi who died in 742 hijri he said wa amma as-sunnah fa inna حفاظاً عارفين وجهابذة عالمين وصيارفة ناقدين That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala يعني decreed and made those great memorizers those who learnt and memorized the sunnah had knowledge of it, preserved it Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brought about, decreed that there would be men of this nature who would memorize, preserve that sunnah and refute those who attempt to distort this sunnah. وَأَمَّا السُّنَّةِ فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ وَفَّقَ لَهَا حُفَّاظًا عَارِفِينَ وَجَهَابِذَا عَالِمِينَ وَصِيَارِفَ نَاقِدِينَ يَنْفُونَ عَنْهَا تَحْرِيفَ الْغَالِينَ وَانْتِحَالَ الْمُبْطِلِينَ وَتَأْوِيلَ الْجَاهِلِينَ فَتَنَوَّعُوا فِي تَصْنِيفِهَا وَتَفَنَّنُوا فِي تَدْوِينِهَا عَلَى أَنْحَاءٍ كَثِيرَةٍ وَظُرُوبٍ عَدِيدَةٍ حِرْصًا عَلَى حِفْظِهَا وَخَوْفًا مِنْ إِضَاعَتِهَا that there were many great scholars, many great scholars over time throughout history who defended this sunnah and they used multiple different means, different types of authorships, different types of writings in defense of the sunnah and to remove the distortions and alterations and misguidances that the people of deviation, the people of innovation, the people of desires were attempting to place upon the sunnah. And so from their great desire, meaning the people of the sunnah, from their great desire to ensure that the sunnah was maintained, and from their, <coughs> from their fear, of allowing those people of innovation to cause the sunnah to become lost, then the people of the sunnah, Ahlus sunnah, they 
put in a lot of effort and striving to ensure that they maintained and preserved the sunnah. وَكَانَ مِنْ أَحْسَنِهَا تَصْنِيفًا وَأَجْوَدِهَا تَأْلِيفًا وَأَكْثَرِهَا صَوَابًا وَأَقَلِّهَا خَطَأً وَأَعَمِّهَا نَفْعًا وَأَعْوَدِهَا فَائِدَةً وَأَعْظَمِهَا بَرَكَةً وَأَيْصَرَهَا مُؤْنَةً وَأَحْسَنِهَا قَبُولًا عِنْدَ الْمُوَافِقِ وَالْمُخَالِفِ وَأَجَلُّهَا مَوْضِعًا عِنْدَ الْخَاصَّةِ وَالْعَامَّةِ صَحِيحٌ أَبِي عَبْدِ اللَّهِ مُحَمَّدٌ بْنُ إِسْمَاعِيلَ الْبُخَارِي ثُمَّ صَحِيحٌ أَبِي الْحُسَيْنِ مُسْلِمٌ بْنُ الْحَجَّاجِ النِّسَابُورِي ثُمَّ بَعْدَهُمَا كِتَابَ السُّنَنِ لِأَبِي دَاوُودَ سُلَيْمَانَ بْنُ الْأَشْعَثِ السِّجِّيْسَانِ ثُمَّ كِتَابُ الْجَامِعِ لِأَبِي عِيسَى مُحَمَّدٍ بْنُ عِيسَى التِّرْمِذِي ثم كتاب السنن لأبي عبد الرحمن أحمد بن شعيب النسائي ثم كتاب السنن لأبي عبد الله محمد بن يزيد المعروف بابن ماجة القزويني وإن لم يبلغ درجتهم أبو الحجاج المزي goes on to say that the scholars throughout time they wrote many books many writings in defense of the sunnah to remove the distortions of the people of innovation and from the best of all of these works from the best of all of these writings was the book of al-imam al-bukhari the one with the greatest benefit in it with the greatest a benefit to the people, the one written in the best way, the one with the most accurate writing within it of the narrations. The best of them was the book Sahih of Al-Imam Al-Bukhari. Then after that was Sahih of Al-Imam Muslim. And then after that, the books of the Sunan. And he mentions them in the order of the Sunan of Abu Dawood first, Sunan Abi Dawood, and then the Al-Jami' of At-Tirmidhi, and then the Sunan of An-Nasai, and then the Sunan of Ibn Majah. وَلِكُلِّ وَاحِدٍ مِنْ هَذِهِ الْكُتُبِ السِّتَّةِ مِيزَةِ يَعْرِفُهَا أَهْلُ هَذَا الشَّأْنِ and all of these six books, every one of them individually has its distinguishing points. All of these six books individually, they all have their distinguishing points. And those who are experts or have knowledge in this field of hadith and uh, uh, these sciences, they are aware of those distinguishing points of each book. فاشتهرت هذه الكتب بين الأنام وانتشرت في بلاد الإسلام These books became famous amongst the people everywhere and they spread across all of the Muslim countries وعظم الانتفاع بها وحرص طلاب العلم على تحصيلها and the amount of benefit that was being taken from these six books 
it increased and the students in their enthusiasm to gain that knowledge from it and striving to benefit from them, that all increased. وَصُنِّفَتْ فِيهَا تَصَانِيفَ عُلِّقَتْ عَلَيْهَا تَعَالِيقَ بَعْضُهَا فِي مَعْرِفَةِ مَشْتَمَلَتْ عَلَيْهِ مِنَ الْمُتُونِ وَبَعْضُهَا فِي مَعْرِفَةِ مَحْتَوَتْ عَلَيْهِ مِنَ الْأَسَانِيدِ وَبَعْضُهَا فِي مَجْمُعِ ذَلِكَ And then these six books, they weren't just left as they are. Scholars after that wrote additional books as supporting books to those six. Supporting books, meaning by that, they wrote extra books in specifics about those six. So some scholars came along and wrote books about the chains of narration and the narrators in those six books. Others they came along and wrote about the actual <coughs> ahadith and the texts in those six books. Others came along and wrote about the chains of narration and the ahadith of those six books. And so there were explanations written, there were uh, other lengthy books written detailing and highlighting benefits from these six famous books. So the first of these we're going to begin with today then is Sahih of Al-Imam Al-Bukhari. Firstly then, the full name and a little biography very briefly of Al-Imam Al-Bukhari. His name was, or his kunya was, Abu Abdullah. Al-Imam Al-Bukhari, his kunya was Abu Abdullah. And his name was Muhammad. Muhammad was the name of Al-Imam Al-Bukhari. Muhammad, and his father's name was Ismail. So he was Muhammad ibn Ismail. And his grandfather's name was Ibrahim. So Al-Imam Al-Bukhari was Abu Abdullah, Muhammad, the son of Ismail, the son of Ibrahim. Muhammad was Al-Imam Al-Bukhari, his father was Ismail, and uh, Al-Imam Al-Bukhari's grandfather was Ibrahim. Uh, ibn Al-Mughira, and his great-grandfather was Al-Mughira. And some of them, <coughs> some of them they mentioned that it was in that great-grandfather, he was the one who initially became Muslim, they say. Al-Mughira, he was the one who became Muslim first. And then after that, Ibrahim and Ismail and then Muhammad al-Imam al-Bukhari, obviously, in that lineage going onwards from there. So, Al-Mu'allif, Abu Abdullah, Muhammad, Ibn Ismail, Ibn Ibrahim, Ibn Al-Mughira, Al-Bukhari, Al-Ju'fi, Mawlahum. Shaykh al-Islam wa Imam al-Huffaz, Amir al-Mu'minin fil-Hadith, Sahib al-Tasanif al-Kathira. So the scholars, they mention how he, he's described as being the Imam of all of the scholars of Hadith being the leader in that field of hadith. And he actually wrote many books. It's not just Sahih al-Bukhari. Al-Imam al-Bukhari actually wrote several other books too. He has other books too. It's not just Sahih al-Bukhari, his only book. 
He was born كان مولده في شوال in the month of Shawwal which is the month straight after Ramadan and that is the 10th month of the Islamic calendar because then the 11th month is Dhul-Qi'dah and then the 12th is Dhul-Hijjah so he was born in Shawwal in the year 194 Hijri in the year 194 Hijri كان مولده في شوال سنة أربع وتسعين ومئة ومات سنة ست وخمسين ومئتين and he died in the year 256 born in 194 and died in 256 and they say regarding al-imam al-bukhari that he used to debate with scholars he was able to debate with scholars on islamic issues when he al-imam al-bukhari himself was only 11 years old they say when he was 11 years old he was able to debate with scholars and to discuss and to have conversation with scholars about these affairs at the age of 11 they say So that is basically the name of Imam al-Bukhari and when he was born and when he died. Ismul kitab what is the name of Sahih al-Bukhari actually? We all know it as Sahih al-Bukhari. But is there an actual name to it? Ishtahara bayna al-ulama bi Sahih al-Bukhari. It is well recognized amongst the scholars and everybody as Sahih al-Bukhari. That is the name that it is recognized by. أَمَّا إِسْمُهُ كَمَا وَضَعَهُ مُؤَلِّفُهُ As for the actual title that Al-Imam Al-Bukhari gave it, the actual title that Al-Imam Al-Bukhari put down originally, then Al-Imam Al-Nawawi mentioned that. He said, سَمَّاهُ Al-Imam Al-Nawawi said that Al-Imam Al-Bukhari actually named what we now call Sahih Al-Bukhari. He actually named it Al-Jami' Al-Musnad Al-Sahih Al-Mukhtasar Min Umuri Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Wa Sunanihi Wa Ayyamih That he actually put the title on it as Al-Jami' Al-Musnad Al-Jami' Al-Musnad Al-Sahih Al-Jami' Al-Musnad Al-Sahih Al-Mukhtasar Min Umuri Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Wa Sunanihi Wa Ayyamihi That was the full title Al-Jami' Meaning like a collective a collection in the linguistic meanings of these words. Al-Musnad, we talked about already, the chains of narration, etc. Al-Sahih, authentic. Al-Mukhtasar, summarized. Min umuri Rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa sunanihi wa iyyami. From the affairs of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and his sunnah, the sunan and his days. 
his life and what he did and what he said. That was the full title uh, that Al-Imam Al-Bukhari named his book as Al-Imam Al-Nawawi tells us. Al-Hafiz Ibn Hajar also mentioned the exact title that Al-Imam Al-Bukhari gave his book. And it's slightly different. Al-Hafiz Ibn Hajar, the famous scholar, he said that Al-Imam Al-Bukhari named it Al-Jami' Al-Sahih Al-Musnad. Those two have changed in the order. In the Al-Imam Al-Nawawi explanation, he said it was Al-Jami' Al-Musnad Al-Sahih. Al-Hafiz Ibn Hajar says it is Al-Jami' Al-Sahih Al-Musnad. من حديث رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم وسننه وأيامه. So you can see there's just a slight difference, and it would appear that the uh, 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 position, the رأي of Ibn Hajar is أقرب إلى الصواب. It is closer to being the truth, closer to being accurate. So you can see the actual title. That Imam al-Bukhari gave to his book was a much longer title. But now, amongst everybody, it has just become famous as Sahih al-Bukhari. Why did Imam al-Bukhari decide to write this book, what we call Sahih al-Bukhari? Why did he decide to put all of those hadith together and compile this book in the first place? There must be a reason. For the ummah. For the ummah, for the ummah of course. But maybe there is some particular reason behind it. Al-ba'ith ala ta'lifin. There are different explanations that the scholars have given as to what the, the drive was for Imam al-Bukhari to write this book. One explanation as Al-Hafiz Ibn Hajar mentions, he says... لَمَّا رَأَى الْبُخَارِيُّ تِلْكَ التَّصَانِيفِ الَّتِي أُلِّفَتْ قَبْلَ عَصْرِهِ وَجَدَهَا بِحَسَبِ الْوَضْعِ جَامِعَ بَيْنَمَا يَدْخُلُ تَحْتَ التَّصْحِيحِ وَالتَّحْسِينِ وَالْكَثِيرِ مِنْهَا يَشْمَلُهُ التَّضْعِيفِ فَلَا يُقَالِ غَثِّهِ سَمِينَ فَحَرَّكَ هِمَّتَهُ لِجَمِعِ الْحَدِيثِ الصَّحِيحِ one of the reasons Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar mentions is that during the time of Imam al-Bukhari, he was born in 194, died in 256. So he is which century? What century are we on? Third century. We've been going through the centuries. So we're on this third century. <coughs> By that time, as we've mentioned in the previous lessons, books had already started to be written and compiled from the second century, from before. However, those books that were compiled and written and put together from before his time, when he came across them and studied them and looked into them, he realized that they are compilations of hadith as we spoke about, but they are general compilations of hadith. There are authentic hadith in them, there are some that are maybe hasan, and there are even some that are weak. So he decided, he was going to put together a compilation, which was going to be purely 
Sahih. Because previously what he found was that they were compilations with authentic, with Hassan, with some even weak. That they were different levels of the narrations. So he decided he was going to write one purely with hadith that are sahih only. So that nobody would have any doubt when they read that book. No question about this hadith or that hadith. They would all be authentic. That is one reason. There's another reason mentioned as well. That led Al-Imam Al-Bukhari to decide to write Sahih Al-Bukhari. And when we say write, it's not like he wrote it himself. It's a compilation of all the authentic ahadith. And he put the chapter titles into it, etc. But the other reason that is mentioned, قَالَ الْحَافِظِ بْنُ حَجَرْ أَيْضًا وَقَوَّى عَزْمَهُ مَا سَمِعَهُ مِنْ أُسْتَاذِهِ أَمِيرِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ فِي الْحَدِيثِ وَالْفِقْءِ إِسْحَاقِ بْنِ رَاهُوَيَا that what actually happened was, or something which gave him more of that push to want to do this book, was something that he heard from his sheikh on one occasion. His sheikh, the sheikh of Imam al-Bukhari, the famous sheikh, Ishaq ibn Rahoya. Ishaq ibn Rahoya, the sheikh of Imam al-Bukhari. One time it's mentioned that Ishaq ibn Rahoya was telling his students, and one of them was Imam al-Bukhari, he was telling them, لو جمعتم كتابا لصحيح سنة رسول رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم. That on one time, on one occasion, or maybe multiple times, he said to his students, "If only you, you the students, if only you would go and compile a book with authentic narrations in it. If only somebody, one of you, would go and do that." So then it's mentioned, قَالَ الْبُخَارِ فَوَقَعَ ذَلِكَ فِي قَلْبِي Al-Imam Al-Bukhari said, that fell into my heart. That statement of his shaykh, when his shaykh was suggesting, one of you should put together a book with all authentic narrations in it. Al-Imam Al-Bukhari, he says, it fell into my heart, that statement. That he decided, he's going to be the one who'll go and do that. فَأَخَذَتْ فَأَخَذْتُ فِي جَمْعِ الْجَامِعَ الصَّحِيحِ And so Al-Imam Al-Bukhari says, I began compiling it all thereafter. So some scholars say that was an incident that occurred too. It was from his shaykh who had made the suggestion, and then Al-Imam Al-Bukhari had decided he would go and do it. There's a third reason as well. They say there's a third reason. وَقَالَ الْحَافِظُ أَيْضًا وَرُوِّينَا بِالْإِسْنَادِ الثَّابِتِ عَنْ مُحَمَّدِ إِبْنْ سُلَيْمَانِ إِبْنْ فَارِسْ قَالْ سَمِعْتُ أَبَا عَبْدِ اللَّهِ الْبُخَارِ يَقُولِ It's mentioned that Al-Imam Al-Bukhari himself said something which explains why he wrote the book. And that is that Al-Imam Al-Bukhari said, رَأَيْتُ النَّبِيَّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ وَكَأَنِّي بَيْنَ يَدَيْهِ وَبِيَدِي مِرْوَحَ أَذُبُّ عَنْهُ 
فسألت بعض المعبرين فقال لي أنت تذب عنه الكذب فهو الذي حملني على إخراج الجامع الإمام البخاري says that on one occasion he had a dream and he saw himself in the presence of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and he saw himself holding a fan you know those big uh, handheld fans that he saw himself with the prophet ﷺ, with a big fan doing like the fan up and down you know how you make the the cold air then doing the fan to the prophet ﷺ, next to the prophet ﷺ. so then he said that he went and asked some people who have some knowledge about dreams and interpretation and they told him the meaning of that is you are defending the sunnah of the prophet ﷺ by pushing away all of the incorrect and false and everything that is wrong you're defending the sunnah pushing that all away like with a fan you blow everything away so that's what they told him and he said when i heard that that this dream the meaning of it is that i am defending the sunnah of the prophet ﷺ, defending the sunnah from lies of the people who lie against the Prophet and the Sunnah. He said, that's what made me decide to go and put together this book and to literally defend the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ from lies, from the kathib, from the fabrications and all types of uh, uh, statements and narrations that people were narrating that were not correct. So that is mentioned as the third possible reason behind uh, having written this book. Now then the next topic here, what is the theme of Imam al-Bukhari's book? What is really the topic of his book? What is the, the, the content of his book? مَوْضُوعُهُ وَالْكَشْفَ عَنْ مَغْزَاهُ فِيهِ قال الحافظ تقرر أنه التزم الصحة الحافظ ابن حجر says something that is established and proven and recognized is that الإمام البخاري obviously stuck to only putting in authentic narrations authenticity وأنه لا يورد فيه إلا حديثا صحيحا and that he would not put any hadith in there unless it was established as authentic. That is the core of the topic of Sahih al-Bukhari. The core of the topic is authentic narrations. That these narrations are all going to be authentic. That's the core and the, the key behind his book, that it is for the purpose of putting together authentic narrations. Uh, How do we know that was actually his intent and that's what he wanted to do? One of the ways is by looking at the actual title that he named it. You remember in those versions of the titles that he named, in both versions... He had mentioned the word as-sahih. So it's clear 
that if that's the title he's giving his book, his intention was to only put the Sahih Ahadith into his book. وَهُوَ مُسْتَفَادْ مِنْ تَسْمِيَّتِهِ إِيَّاهُ الْجَامِعَ الصَّحِيحِ وَمِمَّا نَقَلْنَاهُ عَنْهُ مِنْ رِوَايَةِ الْأَئِمَّةِ عَنْهُ صَرِيحًا ثُمَّ رَأَى أَنْ لَا يُخَلِّيَهُ مِنْ الْفَوَائِدَ الْفِقْهِيَّةِ وَالنُّكَةَ الْحِكْمِيَّةِ فَاسْتَخْرَجَ بِفَهْمِهِ مِنَ الْمُتُونِ مَعَانِ كَثِيرَةَ فَرَّقَهَا فِي أَبْوَابِ الْكِتَابِ بِحَسَبِ تَنَاسُبِهَا وَعَتَنَا فِيهِ بِآيَاتِ الْأَحْكَامِ فَانْتَزَعَ مِنْهَا الدَّلَالَاتِ الْبَدِيعِ الْبَدِيعَةِ وَسَلَكَ فِي الْإِشَارَةِ إِلَى تَفْسِيرِهَا السُّبُلَ الْوَسِيعَةِ Then also from what we have noticed in Sahih al-Bukhari, Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar says, we have noticed clearly that he doesn't miss out in putting benefits in there. It's not just hadith, a list of hadith, one after the next. Al-Imam al-Bukhari adds a lot of benefits into there too. He adds a lot of fiqh benefits into that book too. He adds uh, a lot of uh, explanations of some of the meanings of the narrations that he's quoting. He, he also uh, mentions within it in the chapter headings, in the title headings, the the points that he extracts from those narrations that he's putting in there. Uh, and he gives a lot of importance to the ayat of the Qur'an and the rulings taken from those ayat. And so, there is a lot of wide-ranging benefit in the book of Al-Imam Al-Bukhari. It's not just a list of hadith. There are lots of extra benefits that he puts in, in particular, the chapter headings. Those chapter headings are fiqh in of themselves. The way that he writes those chapter headings, how they are connected to the narrations he puts into those chapters, there is a lot of fiqh, a lot of knowledge, a lot of detail to be understood from the book of Al-Imam Al-Bukhari. Al-Imam Al-Nawawi said, ليس مقصود البخاري الاقتصار على الأحاديث فقط. الإمام النووي said الإمام البخاري's point in this book wasn't just to give you a list of hadith and that's it. That wasn't the point of الإمام البخاري. بل مراده الاستنباط منها والاستدلال لأبواب أرادها. But his point was actually to derive benefits from them. To give you some derivation of evidences and benefits from those different chapters. Because there are multiple chapters in Sahih al-Bukhari. And those chapters have been given titles and headings. So he wanted to extract benefits to it. It wasn't just uh, the idea of a list of authentic hadith and that's it. But there were chapter headings, there was organization, there were benefits. That is what he intended. تراجم البخاري في صحيحه قال أبو أحمد ابن عدي عن عبد القدوس ابن همام قال شهدت عدة مشايخ يقولون حول البخاري تراجم جامعه أي بيضها بين قبر النبي 
وَمِنْبَرِهِ وَكَانَ يُصَلِّ لِكُلِّ تَرْجَمَةِ رَكَعَتَيْنِ It is mentioned about Al-Imam Al-Bukhari and when he wrote Sahih Al-Bukhari that every hadith he put in there he would pray two raka'at istikhara for every hadith that he put in there two raka'at istikhara before putting that hadith into Sahih Al-Bukhari. And it's mentioned how he would be sitting between the grave of the Prophet ﷺ and the member of the Prophet ﷺ. Those who have been there, you know that space from where the member is, and then you move along and then the grave is, and then you have the door. In that section, the old mosque section of Al-Masjid al-Nabawi, that's where he used to be. Of course, in those days, it was just the old mosque section, and that small area of the mosque, all this huge expansion came afterwards. So he would be sitting there in that area, in that area, and every time, and it's mentioned how he would be sitting there in the moonlight. <coughs> sitting there in the moonlight, and every time he was adding a hadith, he would pray two raka'at istikhara before adding that hadith. قال الحافظ الحافظ يسأل ولنذكر ضابطا يشمل على بيان أنواع التراجم فيه وهي ظاهرة وخفية. These uh, uh, titles, chapter headings that Imam Al Bukhari put into his book, they can be categorized into two types. What we mean by this is. When Imam al-Bukhari gathered these hadith, put them together into this book. Like we said, it wasn't just a list of hadith. He categorized them into chapters. This selection of hadith into this chapter. Those hadith into that chapter. Chapters, organized. And every chapter he gave it a title. He gave all of the chapters titles. Those titles that he gave, the scholars they say, they aren't just random titles. Those titles have knowledge within them. If you think about those titles, why Al-Imam Al-Bukhari named this section with that title, you will gain a huge amount of knowledge and benefit from that. And they say his titles were two types. One clear and apparent, and others a little more thought and delving into is required. One type clear and apparent. أَمَّا الظَّاهِرَةِ فَهِيَ أَن تَكُونَ تَرْجَمَةً دَالَّهُ بِالْمُطَابَقَةِ لِمَا يُورِدُ فِي مَضْمُونِهَا وَقَدْ تَكُونُ تَرْجَمَةً بِلَفْظِ الْمُتَرْجَمْ لَهُ أَوْ بَعْضِهِ أَوْ مَعْنَاهُ وَهَذَا فِي الْغَالِبِ The titles, the, the, the titles that were clear and directly linked to the subject of the hadith. Straightforward, clear link in the title. The second type though, أَمَّا الْخَفِيَّةِ وَهِيَ الَّتِي لَا تُدْرَكْ مُطَابَقَتُهَا لِمَضْمُونِ الْبَابِ إِلَّا بِالنَّظَرِ الْفَاحِصِ وَالتَّفْكِيرِ الدَّقِيقِ The second types were, when you look at that title, and then you look at the hadith in that chapter, on the surface, you can't work out, these hadith, what's their subject matter, got anything to do with the title he's given them. There doesn't appear to be 
a direct connection between the title given to the actual narrations in that section. And those are the titles where they aren't mistakes and they aren't wrong. It's where you need to really stop and think and ponder and focus and you realize the point Imam al-Bukhari is making with that title to this hadith. وَهَذَا الْمَوْضِعِ هو معظم ما يشكل من تراجم هذا الكتاب لهذا اشتهر من قول جمع من الفضلاء فقه البخاري في تراجمه Many of the scholars they said that the knowledge of Bukhari the points of benefit the fiqh is in those titles that Imam al-Bukhari did وأكثر ما يفعل البخاري ذلك إذا لم يجد حديثا على شرطه في الباب ظاهر المعنى في المقصد الذي ترجم به ويستنبط الفقه منه. Often if Imam al-Bukhari wants to make a particular point, but there isn't a direct hadith on that point. So he may have to quote another hadith which is on a different topic, but does have a link to that point. But it just takes more thinking and derivation for you to realize how that link is working. وَقَدْ يَفْعَلُ ذَلِكَ لِغَرَضْ Sometimes you would do that on purpose in order to sharpen your minds. That you have to really stop and think, what is the connection here and what does that title mean? To, uh, to sharpen the minds of the students further. وَكَثِيرًا مَا يَفْعَلُ هَذَا حَيْثُ يَذْكُرَ الْحَدِيثِ الْمُفَسِّرِ لِذَلِكَ فِي مَوْضِعٍ آخَرٍ مُتَقَدِّمًا وَمُتَأَخِّرًا And he often does that and sometimes it will be an explanation of a hadith which is mentioned later Uh, or in some other area of the book. So one of the key things to remember from that is, the book of Imam al-Bukhari is organized and there are titles. Those titles are not to be ignored. Don't think I'm going into al-Bukhari just for the hadith. Those titles have a huge amount of benefit in them. How he gave those titles, what their link to those narrations was, the benefits taken from them. Uh, then we'll mention... The section regarding شرط الإمام البخاري في صحيحه What was the conditions that Imam al-Bukhari used when deciding whether to take a hadith and accept it or not? Because obviously you have to have some type of criteria to decide that one is authentic, I'll put that in. That one, it doesn't pass, I won't put that in. What was his criteria? What was his criteria, his conditions in uh, his book, the Sahih of Al-Bukhari? قال الحافظ ابن الطاهر اعلم أن البخاري ومسلم ومن ذكرنا بعدهم أهل السنن لم ينقل عن أحد منهم أنه قال شرطت أن أخرج في كتابي ما يكون على شرط الفلاني None of them from the six books ever actually wrote some little document saying my style and my method and how I work it out and my criteria is this, that, the other. None of them gave us a document telling us how their criteria is and how they decide what to put into their book and which hadith to leave out. They didn't give us a written detailed criteria like that. So how do we know it then? إِنَّمَا يُعْرَفُ ذَلِكَ مِنْ صَبْرِ كُتُبِهِمْ Scholars have worked out what their criteria was by analyzing the actual full 
books. By analyzing Al-Bukhari, they've realized his criteria always fits in with X, Y, and Z. Because all of these hadith, they all fit into the criteria of X, Y, and Z. So they worked out his criteria was X, Y, and Z. Muslim, they've gone through all of it. And they've realized, okay, Al-Imam Muslim, he takes these and those narrations. They all fit into criteria X, Y, and Z. So that must have been the criteria he used. So in that way of analysis, they were able to derive what the criteria was. ثُمَّ قَالْ فَاعْلَمْ أَنَّ شَرْطَ الْبُخَارِ وَمُسْلِمْ أَنْ يُخَرِّجَ الْحَدِيثَ الْمُتَّفَقْ عَلَى ثِقَةِ عَلَى ثِقَةِ نَقَلَتِهِ إِلَى الصُّحَابِ الْمَشْهُورِ مِنْ غَيْرِ اخْتِلَافِ بَيْنَ الثِقَاتِ الْأَثْبَاتِ وَيَكُونُ إِسْنَادُهُ مُتَّصِلًا غَيْرَ مَقْضُوعًا الإمام البخاري and الإمام مسلم both had some criteria that overlaps. Both of them had a criteria that they would only use a hadith, put it into their books, if it was agreed upon their narrators being reliable. All of those narrators were agreed upon as authentic, reliable narrators, all the way up to the companion, without any difference amongst them. All the narrators had to be absolutely legitimate. Both Al-Muslim and Al-Bukhari, Muslim and Al-Bukhari, had this criteria regarding the narrators. They have to be absolutely legitimate. All the way up to the companion uh, and the chain of narration has to be linked all the way up to the top. So they both had that criteria. But Al-Imam Muslim, the scholars they mentioned, Al-Imam Muslim, his implementation of that criteria was a level lower than Al-Imam al-Bukhari's implementation. Meaning sometimes Al-Imam Muslim would allow certain hadith to go in and put them into Sahih Muslim that Al-Imam al-Bukhari wouldn't have taken. Even though that hadith that Imam Muslim allowed to go in is authentic, but it's about the levels of authenticity and the chains of narration and the narrators. There were certain points Al-Imam Al-Bukhari wouldn't let go. Al-Imam Muslim allowed a couple of points because they weren't major points and the hadith is still authentic. So there was a bit of a difference in the level of implementation on those affairs. إِلَّا أَنَّ مُسْلِمًا أَخْرَجَ أَحَدِيثَ أَقْوَامْ تَرَكَ الْبُخَارِ حَدِيثَهُمْ لِشُبْهَ وَقَعَدْ فِي نَفْسِهِ أَخْرَجَ مُسْلِمَ حَدِيثَهُمْ بِإِزَالَةِ شُبْهَةٍ مِثْلُ حَمَّادِ بْنُ سَلَمَةٍ وَسُهَيْلِ بْنُ أَبِي صَالِحٍ وَدَاوُدِ بْنُ أَبِي هِنْدٍ وَأَبِي الزُّبَيْرِ الْمَكِّيِّ وَالْعَلَاءِ بْنُ عَبْدِ الرَّحْمَنِ وَغَيْرِهِمْ So there were some narrators that Imam al-Bukhari wasn't convinced about. He wouldn't take them. So he wouldn't take their narrations. But Imam Muslim checked those narrators and those issues that Imam al-Bukhari had. He felt that those issues were covered. And there wasn't any problem, so he allowed those narrators and their narrations. One of the main things as an example is, imagine now you have a hadith and there are four narrators on it. Person A, person B, person C, to the companion, to the Prophet. Person A, B, C, all of them legitimate, authentic, reliable narrators. Above person uh, uh, C, or uh, C, B, A, and then it's the 
companion anyway, no need to check that, all authentic, no issue there, and the Prophet So now person A, B, and C, they have to be checked. They are all authentic, legitimate narrators. So that means Al-Bukhari and Muslim are going to be happy with that. But there was one thing Al-Imam Al-Bukhari used to add on. He would say, I want proof that narrator A met narrator B. When did they meet? You're telling me narrator A narrated this hadith from narrator B. When did these two meet? Where and when? Want the proof where they met. Did they meet? Where did they meet? And then narrator B says he narrated it from narrator A. Yes, they're all reliable, trustworthy, honest. There's no doubt about that. But I want to know, when did narrator B meet up with narrator A? Where? Now that's obviously making it very strong now. For you to already say he is absolutely trustworthy. Trustworthy. Him B, trustworthy. Him C, trustworthy. But still, where did A meet B when he narrated it? How, when... And where did B meet A when he narrated it? How, when? For extra level of, as we say these days, extra level of security. And Imam Muslim used to say, that's not an issue. He, narrator A, is he authentic, legitimate, reliable? Yes. B, yes. C, yes. In that case, the narration is legitimate. I don't need to go and check exactly where they met and how and etc. So there was that difference, for example. So Alima Muslim would take narrations without having to have evidence of where they met, etc. Whereas Al-Bukhari would say, okay, they're all legitimate, everything, but I want the proof of where A met B, and where B met C. He wanted that extra level of security <coughs> as we may phrase it these days. So that's a slight difference uh, as an example. Um, today, we'll perhaps... Round off on that section there. And that is not complete yet. There is more to come regarding Sahih al-Bukhari yet. Uh, and there is more to come about the explanations about Sahih al-Bukhari. But inshallah ta'ala, the next sections on that topic will begin with from the next session. So we'll conclude upon that for today then. Wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Any questions or anything on that? No, not contradiction, no. They're, they're all authentic. But it's just that level of security. Bukhari wanted a slightly even higher level of security. Al-Imam Muslim was happy with that level of security, which is actually legitimate and the hadith is sahih. You don't need that extra level of security. But Al-Imam Al-Bukhari wanted it, the extra level, to be absolutely sure. So he wouldn't even take the narrations unless they had that extra level on, which isn't even needed to declare the hadith as sahih. So he was extremely strong on his criteria. That's why they say his book is higher level than Al-Imam Muslim. Because he used an even more stringent criteria in deciding which hadith to use. But there's no contradictions, no. We're going to get to that point a little bit later. Basically, yes. Basically, yes. There are some discussions of the scholars over four hadith. But the conclusion on those is they're authentic as well. So basically, yes, Al-Bukhari, all of it is authentic. And Muslim basically too. But we're going to get to that little discussion later next week, inshallah.
mentioned them in my book. I checked that there was um, evidence that these people met each mm. um, And the scholars derived this criteria. Mm. Um, did, did they, where, where, is that evidence uh, in the books or where, where did it, where did it, where did it Be, uh, Because analysis, when they do analysis, it's not just this book. And Imam al-Bukhari has other books. In other books, he would mention all types of other hadith that he would not mention in Sahih al-Bukhari. So scholars, they realized, okay, so obviously when it comes to this other book of his, he's got a different criteria because he's allowing certain hadith to go in here that he wasn't allowing to go in there. So when they start examining like that, all of the different books and everything, you can start to see the patterns of what's going on and why these hadith aren't making it into Sahih al-Bukhari, but they are making it into the other book of Imam al-Bukhari, they start to work out what's going on, and that's where they realize these criteria about meeting people and everything as well. Because all of those narrations, then they could see there were narrations where it was proven, the meetings as well. Whereas in these other books, there were narrations where though the meetings weren't necessarily proven. So they could tell the differences in the criteria like that. Saad, I have two questions. Mm. You know... Um, it's mentioned uh, Imam Dara Qutni and Shafir uh, al-Bani, they had some issues with certain ahadith in Sahih al-Bukhari. That is the same as what he mentioned. We're going to talk about that next week. Oh. Those ahadith that have some issues in them, we're going to mention that next week. But there is no uh, overall issue anywhere. But we're going to get to that next week yet. Inshallah. The question is, what is a, there's a process that the muhadithin used to do in the past called uh, al-Imlaaf. What, what does that incorporate? How are you talking about Al-Imla? What is Al-Imla? You tell me first, what is Al-Imla? I've heard of it, and it used to be some kind of process they used to have. What process? What was it? I don't know, something to do with narrating a hadith, but I These are, I mean, that that there, there's no point even explaining it by itself. Al-Imla, it's one of the things you study in the sciences of hadith. It's about, we talked about it briefly last week, about the manner in which you narrate a hadith. That's one of the manners of narrating a hadith. So one of the manners was, if you hear it directly from the sheikh, the sheikh narrates it, you hear it. The other manner was, you recite it to him and he just confirms it. The other was, maybe you find the sheikh's book. Imla is one of those types. Imla is a type of that, but I mean, to discuss that, it's not uh, something you discuss. That is from the sciences of hadith, you know, big, big books, and when we get to the science of hadith, to those sections, maybe we can talk about, they call this min, ad, min uh, uh, tahammul, the, they, they call it tahammul, the the al tahammul, this comes under that, from the, the methods of uh, narrating a hadith, from the methods of gaining a hadith, imla is one of them, about the, the writing, how they used to write it out, and how they used to dictate and write, but those are uh, fine details, and it's not really something you need to know, or anybody needs to know. Those are details that are specifics and very niche. That's the word people use these days. That's the type of detail you're only really going to study and learn if you're studying high level sciences of hadith. Otherwise, you know, these kind of things, that's why they say there's no point even mentioning them in English articles and writings and books. There's no point. No point talking about Imlan stuff in English books or English writings. Because it doesn't make any sense in English. The only way you're going to understand that is if you go read the big fat books of science of hadith. Thousand pages, two thousand pages long. So that is just one of the methods of narrating hadith and taking hadith. 
All right. We'll carry on next week, inshallah ta'ala, 7 p.m. again, 10 past 7 roughly, inshallah.